0: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast
1: with richard jacobs hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast i have shuvo roy he's a professor of bioengineering at uh California, San Francisco, and we're going to talk about his work. So, Shuvo, thanks for coming.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Richard.
1: Please tell me about your research.
2: So most of my work has focused on the development of an artificial kidney. We call it the Kidney Project, and it's a national effort to create a surgically implantable bioartificial kidney that will provide you know, constant treatment to patients that are currently on dialysis.
1: Yeah, and according to what I know about the kidney, it's a super complex organ with like million, you know, million plus nephrons with very complicated shapes of tissues and blood supplies. Is this like pretty much the hardest organ that uh, that could be created artificially? What's your opinion?
2: The kidney is certainly a complex organ. Our kidneys perform a host of functions. Of course, producing urine or removal of toxins is one of the key. Functions, but it also helps with regulating blood pressure, producing hormones, as well as protecting the body's immune system and controlling the blood's pH, the acidity level of blood. And all these functions are lost when kidneys stop functioning. So dialysis provides one key function, which is toxin removal, but does not do the others as well as a natural kidney. So the Gold standard for people with kidney failure is a transplant and to replicate all the functions of a kidney is a tremendous task. I'll contrast this with the heart whose job is to pump blood and that's its main and only job if you will, while the kidneys have, you know, these 5 to 7 key functions. So yes, it is quite complicated and nobody to date has been able to make anything that captures all the functions and we are working towards getting functions beyond dialysis.
1: So are you trying to make a nephron or an entire kidney, an artificial one?
2: So we are taking a, an approach that will provide the key functions of a kidney to start. And that is basically toxin removal and produce some of the hormones that the body produces. That's what I would call our initial target level. As we deliver that to the patients, it will allow those patients to become free of dialysis, live a more normal life, and gain the benefits of being mobile and not having to go into a clinic three times a week. As that device gets into clinical realm and to the patients, in our technology will continue to be refined further, so it will make it increasingly more sophisticated, so it will capture, eventually we would hope, all the functions of a kidney. So we're going to go beyond dialysis to start with the idea that we'll provide mobility and continuous treatment, allow the patients to eat and drink freely and not have to worry about getting to a dialysis center every other day, like most dialysis patients have to do now. And that in itself, from our, our work with patients, we think is going to be a big step forward. And as that moves into the patients, we'll continue refining the technology so that or make our device more and more sophisticated to mimic the other functions of a natural kidney.
1: So what stage are you at now? Are you making an organoid, or are you actually able to make a complete structure in the kidney? Like, how far along are you?
2: So you've mentioned organoids, uh, which I think is very important to sort of uh, say how we are similar and different. So much of the work that has happened in organoids have come about by advances in stem cell technology, And they're trying to basically build a nephron. The nephron, as you know, is the functional unit of the kidney and the millions of nephrons, as you've mentioned. And most of the organoids right now are designed really for in vitro work, meaning working in the lab. Much of it is designed to screen for drug toxicity and interactions of drugs with kidney cells. It's fundamentally a tool for pharmaceutical industry and academic research. And as those organoids become more and more developed, the hope is that they will eventually lead to a organ that can be used on patients. We are taking a fundamentally different approach. We've started from the question, what is it that patients desire and what do patients need? And then work backwards to see what we can deliver in the shortest possible time. The organoid technology that comes about by stem cell differentiation, we think is very exciting, but to get from where we are today, which is a single nephron or tens of nephrons to what you need, hundreds of thousands of nephrons, I think is too far out for the patients that have kidney failure today to benefit from unless they get a transplant. So we've said, what can we do to provide the equivalent function? So we are building what I would call the equivalent of a nephron by combining a mechanical filter constructed from silicon wafers with cadaver kidney cells that could not be transplanted. So the mechanical filter provides the filtration function of the kidney, removes all the toxins. The kidney cells isolated from a cadaver kidney that could not be transplanted provide the other key functions of the proximal tubule. This is one of the segments of the kidney nephron that performs a number of functions, including water and salts reabsorption and removal of protein-bound toxins. These two functions of uramic toxin removal coupled with proximal tubule function will be the equivalent of our nephron. And what we are thinking about is, you know, what do we need to provide a patient so that they have a level of independence? And so we are working towards providing a therapeutic amount of treatment, which is the equivalent of about 20 to 30% of a kidney. Most organoids you read about in the papers or in the literature are a millionth or one thousandths of a real kidney. We're trying to target more than 20 to 30% of a real kidney.
1: Do you use a silicon wafer technology where you'll try to print or layer onto a wafer like hundreds of thousands of mini uh, tubule arrangements?
2: Right. So what we're going to be doing is we're using the silicon wafers, one, to create the filter. And then the second stage of the device houses these kidney cells on the membrane and they form a sheet that, performs the function of the kidney tubule. The membrane provides another function, which is also protects the body's immune system components from attacking the cells that are inside the compartment defined by the membrane. That way, the cells do not directly communicate with the body's immune system and no immunosuppression drugs are required.
1: How are you shielding the uh, cells from the immune system, yet still giving them blood and nutrients and everything, the kidney cells?
2: So our device uses the silicon membranes as a filter. So the pores, the holes, if you will, in the filter are large enough to allow passage of toxins, allow the passage of nutrients through the membrane. So the oxygen that's in the blood, the nutrients are in the blood, and the toxins in the blood can pass through the pores into the membrane, but they are too small for the immune components from the patient's blood to get into through the membrane. So those elements, such as antibodies, cytokines, can't effectively, quote unquote, see the cells that are inside the device, but the pores are large enough to allow chemical exchange that happens for the smaller size molecules. So their cells basically can react to different levels of solutes in the blood, can regulate water volume, but are protected because of these size of the pores from the body's immune system components.
1: What about the uh, the waste products created by the filtration from the kidney cells, where do they, they go?
2: So after the blood gets filtered in the first stage to create the watery ultrafiltrate, it is directed to a second stage. Uh, watery ultrafiltrate is processed by the kidney cells such that much of the water and a lot of the salts are reabsorbed back through the small pores back into the bloodstream, leaving the toxins and a little amount of water in the device, which is then directed to the bladder as urine. So to answer your question, the exit of the device is to the bladder and the patient would be able to urinate normally.
1: Well, I thought in the uh, typical nephron, at least three different types of filtration along its length. The filters have different components. So Have you recreated all areas or just one part of it so far?
2: We have certainly focused on two areas. The first is the glomerular filtration. This is where blood goes through the kidneys, nephron, and the glomerulus. It picks out all the small solutes below 66 kilodaltons. That's the size of albumin, a key protein in blood. So that is mimicked by the silicon filter. This ultrafiltrate is directed to the cellular component which we call the bioreactor. And in this bioreactor, the cells will be responsible for the removal of protein-bound toxins and reabsorb much of the water. What we have not done to date is replicate the rest of the tubule, which is the distal tubule and the collecting duct. And as we improve our technology, we'll incorporate those cells into our device as well. But by focusing on the proximal tubule, and the glomerular filter, we can provide a level of clearance and a level of toxin removal that will allow the patients to be free of dialysis.
1: So, what what do you see as the major technical challenges to you creating a clinic-ready device?
2: Right. So, how do we move from where we are to one that gets into the clinic? So, it will help if I tell you exactly where we are in the development cycle. So, we have shown that prototype filters and prototype bioreactors function on the bench and in animals. We've also shown that they can be implanted into pigs at this time using surgical techniques that we've developed. So we've shown the feasibility of small-scale prototypes for up to 30 days in pigs. Where do you want to go from here to get to a patient? To get to a patient, you have to scale up, you have to integrate and show that our devices can provide a therapeutic level of function. So the key challenges are really around scale-up and integration. They are fundamentally engineering challenges and not scientific uh, barriers, but they will require to be iterated on and solved before we can have a clinical scale prototype that we can test on patients.
1: And where are you at in terms of clinical trials and people? You're not at that stage yet?
2: So, we are working very closely with the FDA through their breakthrough device program, and it allows us to have interactive discussions with the reviewers and scientists and the leadership at the FDA to roadmap what are the different steps to get to a clinical trial and getting through clinical trials. That has been a great program for us, and we have delineated a path forward. So, the very first step in going To a device that will get to clinical trials is to establish the safety of the materials we're going to use. These materials which are fundamentally new to the medical arena is the silicon wafer and related components. So the very first clinical trial we're going to pursue is test the safety of the silicon materials on dialysis patients. We have worked out with the FDA that the first study is actually going to be external. We're just going to test the material for an extended period over in a dialysis patient over the course of a day, and then look at the patient's labs and look at our materials to see if there's any adverse effects. We have roadmapped this. We are now preparing the data that uh, we have to submit to the FDA to get an IDE, Investigational Device Exemption, so we can conduct this test. I was hoping for this test in 2020, but with the pandemic, our schedule has been shifted. So assuming we don't have supply chain issues and the pandemic resolves, we hope the first clinical trial in 2021. Thereafter, we'll then proceed to the implant trial.
1: Can you implant a uh, device with this morphology and it works it recreates the necessary functions of the kidney or even just as one function. This would be the, uh, the step. Just implant this partial or this device where it replicates 20 to 30% of the urine producing and filtration function. You said before the kidney has uh, five or six jobs. Yes. But I guess it's, it's enough of a Herculean task to just emulate the filtration and urine producing job, right?
2: Right. So uh, let's yeah. see why 20 to 30%. So if you look at presumably healthy kidneys, Call that 100% and effective. You don't actually get on dialysis until your kidneys at about 10 to 15%. And many people don't even know they have kidney problems until they crash into dialysis inside the ER. So we also know that people who get diagnosed early and by changes in lifestyle, medication, they can slow down the progression of kidney disease. So what that means is that at 50%, at 30%, 40%, 25%. They're leading more or less normal lives in terms of work, in terms of spending time with their family and so forth. So we would like to be able to provide as a first step patients to be off dialysis, meaning that if we can get them 30% of kidney function, for most patients, that's transformational. That's almost leading a normal quality of life. So we targeted that because we felt that getting 20 to 30% was a quantum leap in terms of the patient quality of life and health, but also achievable within the lifetime of today's kidney failure patients, which is between 5 to 10 years.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So it, um, if this device makes it into a person, will it be hooked up to their bladder and their ureters so they'll pee like normal, or will they have to like empty a bag, or what will they do?
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: So the idea is that this device would be surgically implanted very much like a kidney transplant. It would be located in the abdomen. It would be connected to blood vessels and on the other side be connected to the bladder. And you're absolutely right. They would be able to go to the bathroom and they would not need to empty a bag or be connected to any external machine.
1: Yeah, that's great. So they could live, you know, pretty much how they lived before with one of these implants. Yeah, you know? And there's no shortage of it, too, if, if someone needs two of them. Yeah, you know, I guess from what I've heard, when people get a kidney transplant, they only get one, they don't get two. If it's not enough to go around, and it's a big waiting list. So this would uh, solve the capacity problem, too, right?
2: Yes, it would address the issue of getting access to treatment. So as you know, you know, less than 20% of the people on the wait list actually get a transplant. And to be on the wait list, you have to be sick of of the sick. So there are about 500,000 patients on dialysis in this country. About 100,000 patients are on the wait list and just around 20,000 get a kidney transplant. The ones that don't get on the wait list does not mean that they don't need a kidney. It means they just don't meet all the criteria because we have to prioritize. So by having a device, we can take that burden away so that anybody that needs a kidney can get one.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. What do you what's your guess on how long it's gonna to take to get into the clinic from here?
2: That's a great question. And the way I think about it is what have we shown so far and what we need to show? So as I say, we've shown that we can make smaller scale prototypes that work for 30 days, and now we need to scale this up and show that it works more than 30 days. So we have to iterate through an engineering cycle. So if resources were not the limit, then I would say that, you know, between three to five years would we'll get to the first clinical trial. And then within the decade, it would get to the market, if you will, to everybody that needs one. Because we're taking a fundamentally engineering approach and we do not have to wait for new discoveries to be made that will allow this to be scaled up and deployed as, as a device to the community of patients that need it.
1: Yeah, that's a when, when somebody gets a kidney transplant, do so they take out their existing kidney, so they just add a new kidney?
2: Typically, they don't take it out. Uh, so most people with kidney transplants actually have an extra kidney. Heck, some people have two extra kidneys, and I've even heard of people having a third. Yeah, the, the first ones failed, so. In kidney transplant, typically you leave the kidneys because taking it out, unless there's a reason to take it out because it has cancer or whatnot or polycystic, there might be some very little residual function, uh, so that's beneficial. And just taking something out causes additional trauma. So in most cases, the existing kidneys are left in place.
1: And the existing kidneys, um, I know they, re- they the person has to be immunosuppressed. So with your device, would they not have to be immunosuppressed at all or just less?
2: Exactly. So one of the value propositions of what we are doing, if you will, is that the components that generate an immune reaction that cause rejection, the antibodies, those can't get through the membrane and attack the cells that are in our device. So we actually anticipate that the patients will not really need immunosuppression drugs. And you may know this, and your audience may also know this, that these immunosuppression drugs themselves are not only expensive, but they are also toxic. They're also toxic to the kidney. As such, the lifetime of a kidney transplant is somewhere around the order of 10 years because the same drugs that are preventing rejection are slightly killing them over time. So that at the end of 10 years, and some people are lucky, it goes a little longer. Some people are less lucky and doesn't survive as long that you'll need a subsequent kidney transplant or go back on dialysis. With our device, you will not need the immunosuppression drugs. So any issues associated with immunosuppression are relieved.
1: What about recreating the other parts of the kidney function? Is that just such a difficult task that it's got to be left to other groups and this focus is plenty enough?
2: So the other functions of a kidney, which are also important, will be delivered, if not by us, by other groups, are working on different approaches to it. Our approach has been, let's get to something that can get to patients within five years or so. And I'm taking the software sort of analogy, get a version one out so people can use it while we continue to work on version two, version three. And so our vision is that as we get the first version out that provides 15 to 20 percent, 30 percent of a regular kidney, function that in itself helps patients, but we'll continue to refine the technology and add more functionality in subsequent rounds and take the lessons we've learned from this first round to help us improve. So I envision that ultimately we'll have an implanted artificial kidney that will provide most of the functions of a transplant. And it will require more work and will also leverage a lot of the work that's being done by other groups in stem cell, in biomaterials work, improvement in surgical techniques and the like. So I see that it will be a team effort and learning from other groups after we get this first version out, which I think will be a key step to helping the patient community.
1: What's the best way for people to find out more about your progress and keep tabs?
2: Yes. To get more information about our project, uh, we have three forums. One is sort of the academic literature, which is available to the scientific and public community, but sometimes it's a little too detailed and, and maybe focused on very individual scientific experiments. The other more public-facing option is our Facebook page. So Facebook slash Artificial Kidney. And it's where we put out all our announcements on scientific work, but also in terms of clinical trials, what our progress is. And you can certainly like and follow the page and you'll be kept up to date. We also have presence on Instagram. We welcome other people to look at our website, which is kidney.ucsf.edu. That's kidney as in the organ and UCSF is University of California, San Francisco, and then EDU for education. So you can access any of those forums to find out where we are and also engage with us in a dialogue. We'd love to hear more from the public and the scientific community as to how we might fine tune our work and any issues about how our work can be relevant to their community is welcome. So for example, we love to get engagement from patients. And we have done so working with the American Association of Kidney Patients, the Home Dialysis United groups, to get input on what should we provide as a first step. And this first step device of 30% really came from patient feedback who's, who informed us that it was really important to them to get mobility, meaning ability to travel, walk around, not have to be tethered to a machine. So we use that input to guide us. So patients and families and other people can give us input through these forums that guide how we advance the technology towards the actual product.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's good that you're open to that and this innovations. Boshubo, fantastic effort, amazing thing. And uh, hopefully it'll be available in the next 10 years or so to people clinically. And, and I appreciate you being on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. We believe it will get there before 10 years. And come everybody to join the effort with us. Thank you.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.